Welcome to Sharper Iron, Back to the Forge. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for being a regular listener to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm coming to you on this special podcast-only episode to answer some listener email from the Jeremiah series due to matters of scheduling during this summer. I haven't always been able to respond to all of the emails that have been sent, but it has been a great joy to receive those emails. I'd like to address some of the things that were brought up. So these come from the Jeremiah series that we've been doing since May. We're going to see a wide variety of time periods within that series. And the first email goes all the way back to the beginning to some introductory material. And it's got a couple of questions about some of the background for the book of Jeremiah. So the the first question from that email goes like this. Was Jeremiah born in Jerusalem or somewhere else in the southern kingdom of Judah? Jeremiah tells us in the opening part of his book that he is from the town of Anathoth, which is in the southern kingdom of Judah. It's about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. That's where he's from. The second part of that email asks concerning some of the world superpowers of the day and Jeremiah's relationship to them. So the email says that, To my knowledge, the Assyrians conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, around 722 BC. That is correct. So Jeremiah would have been born when the Assyrians were already in power. The Assyrian king was Ashurbanipal, who reigned from 668 to 627 BC. That is also true, that the Assyrians were in power when Jeremiah was born. We know again from Jeremiah's call that he began his ministry in the 13th year of King Josiah's reign, which would have been 627 BC. He's called a young man when he's called. So if he's anywhere from 13 to 18 years old when he is called to be a prophet, that puts his birth between 645 and 640 BC, somewhere in that general range, which is when the Assyrians are in power. And that is when that same Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, is reigning. So the email continues, Did the Assyrians have much influence on the southern kingdom of Judah? Did Josiah or those who followed him have any interaction with the Assyrian empire? I'm just wondering if Jeremiah would have had any interaction with the Assyrians, even during his early childhood years, even before the Lord called him. So we can do a little bit of history here to answer some of this question. Did the Assyrians have much influence on the southern kingdom of Judah? They did. They did. And there are several accounts in the scriptures that give us some of the background of that. Again, Assyria was the world superpower prior to Babylon. And in the 730s BC, King Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Judah went to Assyria and asked for their help. Judah at that time faced an alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and Aram, or Syria. Those two kingdoms, Israel and Syria, had allied against Judah. And so King Ahaz, rather than trusting in the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah instructed him to do in Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz instead looked to Assyria for help. And you can read more about that in Isaiah 7, as I mentioned, or in 2 Kings 16. And Assyria did come and help Judah, but it came at a cost, certainly economic and political. Judah became a vassal of Assyria. And very importantly, 
there were significant religious effects of this asking for help that Ahaz chose to do. In fact, in 2 Kings 16, we find out that King Ahaz sent Uriah the priest a model of the altar that he had seen in Damascus in Assyria so that Uriah could make that altar and put it in the Lord's temple and that pagan offerings could be offered there. So Assyria certainly had a very big influence on the people of Judah in very negative ways. And we see that continuing from the reign, king, a reign of King Ahaz going forward. Ahaz's son Hezekiah pushes back against that, certainly religiously. He pushes back against the idolatry that was happening. And he pushed back politically. Now, by the time of King Hezekiah, Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom, as the email mentioned. And so there was a lot less of a buffer zone between Assyria and the kingdom of Judah. And Judah was very greatly threatened by Assyria. And you can read more about this in Isaiah 36 or 2 Kings 18 to see how the Lord rescued his people from the Assyrian threat. But certainly they were still exerting significant influence there over the southern kingdom. After Hezekiah, you have Manasseh, who's probably the most wicked king of them all, and who really brings back a lot of that Assyrian idolatry, again, continuing as a vassal state of Assyria. So significant influence and particularly negative, wicked religious influence that Assyria is having over Judah under the reign of King Manasseh. After Manasseh comes Ammon, his reign is quite short, and then comes Josiah in the year 640 B.C., and he comes to power as an eight-year-old. And it's around that time where the power of Assyria really starts to wane. And that allows Josiah in his later years, when he begins his reforms, to push back against this Assyrian influence, not only religiously, which we know from great detail at the end of Second Kings, but also politically, economically. And some of Assyria's grip on Judah really starts to wane. The king that was mentioned of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, he died in 627 BC. And at that time, there was a civil war in Assyria that really started to weaken Assyria's power. And it wasn't long after that that Babylon really started to rise as the world's superpower, and particularly later in the Battle of Carchemish, which we've mentioned on this series with the book of Jeremiah. Babylon really puts an end to the Assyrian Empire and resume, and begins its reign as the primary world superpower. So having said all of that, could Jeremiah have seen some Assyrian influence? I think so, early on in his life. We don't have any record of any of his, his interaction with Assyrian kings or anything like that. It comes from that. It would have come from that time period in his life where we just don't have anything in the book of Jeremiah about that. But by the time Jeremiah begins his reign as a, excuse me, his ministry as a prophet, by that time, Assyria is really not the world's superpower anymore. And during Jeremiah's ministry, the primary world powers he's dealing with are Babylon and also Egypt. So in terms of Assyrian influence during the time of Jeremiah, it's really starting to wane. Babylon and Egypt are going to be the two superpowers that are really going to exert a lot of influence there in Judah. And as we see in the book, are influential in the things that Jeremiah preaches. So that's email number one. Email number two takes us into Jeremiah 14, and this is a really good question. It's an important question. It's one we need to wrestle with. 
In Jeremiah chapter 14, the, re- the reader, the listener writes, Jeremiah prays and pleads for God to have mercy, to relent. In verse 20, it's as if he's saying a corporate confession on behalf of the people. He says, we acknowledge our wickedness, and he reminds God about his covenant. But as we will soon hear, God does not relent. So how might this apply to us today as we pray for those who have lost their way or for those who persecute us? If we pray to God and ask him to have mercy and to turn the hearts of our enemies, persecutors, and slanderers, should we expect that God will do so? It appears that God's wrath will come upon those who do not truly repent regardless of our prayers. That's the listener email. Great question. Lots to reflect upon here. Lots to think about. And I'm glad to to be able to sharpen our iron together with a question like this. So if we pray to God and ask him to have mercy and to turn the hearts of our enemies, persecutors, and slanderers, should we expect that God will do so? That question, should we expect God will do so? What should we expect from God? I'm reminded of a couple of Old Testament examples of repentance. One comes from Joel chapter 2. The prophet speaks, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. That's Joel 2, verses 12 through 14. Maybe you caught it as I was reading it. The words that come to mind that I think are going to help us with this question is that statement, who knows whether he will not turn and relent? The other Old Testament example uses that same phraseology. It comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. The king of Nineveh has heard the preaching of Jonah and is brought to repentance. And as he's proclaiming the fast throughout his kingdom, he says this. This is Jonah 3, verses 8 and 9. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So concerning the question, what should we expect from God? Notice that in both of these examples of repentance, the people are not coming to God in repentance, presuming upon God's mercy. They're not coming in some sort of formulaic way in an attempt to force God's hand. If I repent like this, God will respond like this, and I will get what I want, almost like a vending machine sort of God. They're not presuming upon God in that way. Rather, they're going to God in repentance because they've heard his word and it has cut them to the heart. They have recognized that God has spoken his law. They have transgressed his law. They deserve his punishment. And the only possible thing they can do is nothing of their own, but to simply throw themselves upon God, not presuming upon him, but in faith trusting that he is God, they are not, and he will do what is good and just and right. And in that sense, anytime God shows his mercy, as he does there in the book of Jonah, it should be surprising to us. It should be amazing to us. Our mouths should 
drop in awe and wonder that God would be merciful because I know I don't deserve it. I'm a sinner. I was born in rebellion against God and I've lived that way. I deserve his wrath, his punishment, his condemnation. And what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus, to take all of that sin of mine, to make it his own, to carry all that sin to the cross, to die for it there, to earn my forgiveness, to conquer my greatest enemy, Satan, to defeat death, to rise gloriously on the third day, to promise me that same gift of eternal life. That's amazing. That's fantastic. That's awesome. That's wonderful in the truest sense of all of those words. That should be surprising to us. Should I expect that God is going to be merciful? On the one hand, it's just, wow, I did not see that coming. Now, at the same time, he does tell us in his word that's who he is. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so should we expect that mercy of God? Sure, we should believe his promises. We should cling tightly to those promises. And we should expect him to be merciful because that's who he says he is, not because we presume upon it, not because we have prayed in just the right way to get just the right result. We should expect him to be merciful because that's who he says he is. And it's that promise of God that drives us to prayer in the first place. So again, the the question, if we pray to God, ask him to have mercy, turn the hearts of our enemies, persecutors, and slanderers, should we expect that God will do so? Well, we know what God's will is. We know that his will is that the sinner should repent and not die. And so we pray to God in that confidence, asking him to fulfill that will. One of the mysteries is that God allows himself to be rejected. He suffers himself to be scorned and for people to tell him, no, I don't want that. And that is what we see in the book of Jeremiah over and over again. He extends his promise to his people. He says, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And they say, no, we don't want that. And it's a mystery that God then gives them what they want. He shows them what it's like when he's not their God and they're not his people. It's not a pretty picture. It's a mystery that God allows that. But we still pray. We still pray for that because we know what God has said about who he is. We've seen who God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we pray not presuming upon his mercy, but trusting in who he is, who he's shown himself to be. And what do we expect from God? Well, we expect that he will do his will when and where he pleases, as we confess in the Lutheran Confessions, that the Holy Spirit works through the word to bring to faith when and where he pleases. And so we pray for that. And we let the Lord do that when and where he pleases. Where he does do that, where he brings our persecutors, our slanderers, our enemies, those who've fallen from the faith, where he brings them back to himself in repentance and faith, we rejoice with the angels 
in heaven with the whole heavenly host. And is that amazing? Is that surprising? Wow, what a thing that God would bring even our worst enemies back to himself. Where he doesn't? Again, we come to God in prayer not because we can force his hand, but because we trust in his mercy. We don't presume upon him. And where he doesn't, we continue to pray. That's what Jeremiah kept doing. There's at least three occasions in the book, chapter 7, 11, and 14, where the Lord tells Jeremiah, don't pray for this people, which is horrifying to read. Yet Jeremiah still does. Jeremiah still prays. He still preaches. And he preaches at the Lord's command, which is a very hopeful thing, that the Lord would continue to speak to his people, even as they reject him over and over, that he continues to speak. He does so because he loves them, because he wants them to repent. There's a verse that really stood out to me in the book of comfort of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 20, where the Lord asks, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? The answer is yes. And then the Lord says this, For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. When the Lord speaks against his people, it's because he remembers them. And in the Old Testament, to remember, for the Lord to remember is for him to act. That's why he speaks against his people, is to move their hearts to repentance so that they would repent, trust in him, and that he would show them mercy. And so as long as we see the Lord speaking in Jeremiah, and we see Jeremiah praying, what should we expect God to do? Well, we should expect him to be God, to be who he is, and when and where he pleases to bring people to repentance. And where he doesn't, we should mourn that because that's what the people have chosen. It's not his fault that they've rejected him. It's their own fault. What a tragic thing that people would choose to reject God, that people would choose to be their own God, to listen to God say, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And for them to say, no, thanks. What a tragedy. And yet we know who God is. We know he's gracious and merciful. We've seen that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we do continue to pray and we expect that God will do what is right, what is just, what is holy, what is good, because that's who he is. And where he does work that repentance and faith through his word, God be praised and we rejoice in the wonder that God would save a sinner like that, and ultimately that God would save a sinner like me. Such grace, God be praised. Thanks for that email. Lots to chew on there from God's word. The next email takes us to the next chapter, Jeremiah 15. Listener writes, I have a thought. I was wondering more about why God relented when Moses and Samuel interceded, but not in the case of Jeremiah. It appears to me that in the case of Moses and Samuel, the people were afraid of the wrath of God, and they asked Moses and Samuel to intercede. But with Jeremiah, I don't see this from the people. It seems like Jeremiah is pleading to God on his own. But the people would rather listen to the false prophets and worship false gods. I haven't heard anything about the people fearing God or asking Jeremiah to intercede on their behalf. Is that the big difference with Jeremiah, that the people were not fearful or repentant? I think that's a really good insight. It does seem, as we read in the book of Jeremiah, that the people of Judah in Jeremiah's day have hardened their hearts, 
their hearts are calloused, their ears are calloused to the word of God. They don't want to listen to Jeremiah. They don't want the Lord's mercy. And God gives them what they want. I've had other guests in previous episodes call this Burger King theology on the part of the people. They want it their way. And so God says, have it your way, which ends up being a very terrifying thing for them. Pharaoh in the book of Exodus is a great example of this, where over and over again, he hardens his heart against the word of the Lord. God says, okay, have it your way. He lets Pharaoh see what it's like when Pharaoh's God. And it doesn't turn out well for Pharaoh. Never turns out well for us when we harden our heart, when we become calloused to the word of God. And in the days of Moses and Samuel, it does seem that the people have not yet hardened their hearts and the word of God comes and works on them and they join in the repentance that Moses prays and Samuel prays. But in Jeremiah's day, as he utters that prayer of repentance at the end of 14 and we move into the Lord's answer in Jeremiah 15, the people don't join in that repentance. Maybe they did outwardly under some of the reforms of King Josiah, but it never goes into their heart. And with that hardened, calloused heart, God gives the people what they want. And that's a terrifying thing, a tragic thing as well, that God would freely give his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. And people say, I don't want that. And that's why they don't have it. They don't want it. What a terrible thing. And yet we continue to pray, and yet we continue to speak the word that God would work when and where he pleases to bring to repentance and faith. I think this email's got a great insight that in the day of Jeremiah, the people aren't repentant. They're not fearful. Their hearts are hardened and calloused. And it does stand as a great warning to us so that we would repent and believe now while the word is being preached to us before that day comes so that on that day we would be found in Christ and have eternal life in him. Another great email. One more email takes us to Jeremiah chapter 37. Another great insight from one of our listeners who knows Hebrew. And he's commenting particularly on Jeremiah 37 verse 10. And in this context, the Lord gives Jeremiah a word to speak to the king, Zedekiah, and he's to tell Zedekiah that the Chaldean army is going to take Jerusalem. And even if the Lord has to do something miraculous with the Chaldean army, that's what's going to happen. And so to get a little bit of the context here, I'm going to read Jeremiah 37 verses 7 to 10, and I'll point out particularly when we come to the part of the listener email. So Jeremiah 37, beginning at verse 7, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. And then we come to verse 10. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. So the Lord says, look, even if the Chaldeans are injured, I would still cause them to rise up and burn the city of Jerusalem. And the Hebrew word that our listener astutely pointed out 
is the word that in the ESV is translated as wounded. And he pointed out that in several other contexts, this word is translated pierced and more appropriately means pierced. So wounded can have a a wide range of meaning within the English language. I could be wounded because I stubbed my toe and I could be wounded because I was stabbed. And it's that latter meaning that is really more often associated with this Hebrew word. And there's a couple of places, one in Numbers 25, where this same Hebrew word is used by some folks who are pierced and they die. And then the other place, and this I think will be a little more familiar to us, is from Zechariah 12, verse 10. And it reads this. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Did you catch that? When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. John cites that in reference to Jesus, pierced on the cross after he has died. So again, in those two contexts, Numbers 25, Zechariah 12, which refers to our Lord Jesus there on the cross after he's died, you see that this verb is used in cases where death has either been caused or it's already occurred. So think about that in terms of Jeremiah 37.10, and I'll read it with that translation, even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only pierced men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. Notice how that adds to the power of what the Lord is doing there. Not simply that the Lord allowed people, say, with a a stubbed toe to come and conquer the city, but men who had been pierced, the connotation being perhaps died, even if men had been pierced to death, those men would still conquer the city. That's how powerful the Lord is. And that Hebrew word there, recognizing how else it's used in the Old Testament, really adds to the color of this to see the Lord's great power. I'm very thankful that the listener pointed this out because it really does add to this picture and make it that more vivid This is how great the Lord's power is, and here he's using it for judgment. He's telling them, you will not escape my power to judge you, even if I have to raise men from the dead, from their piercing. I will do so, and my judgment will fall upon you. Again, there's warning for us. But to know that the Lord's great power, then, also comes to us in mercy. That he's used that same great power in his son, Jesus Christ, the one who was pierced and now has been raised so that in him, you and I look to that power of the Lord and we repent and we trust in him. And we know that that the Lord's power will one day raise us from our graves when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Sharper Iron, Back to the Forge. Thank you so much for all these emails. I love to get them. I love to hear what you're thinking, to know that your faith is being sharpened, and to have you sharpen my faith as well as you respond with questions and comments. It's so wonderful to be in God's Word together. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Keep those emails coming. Thanks for listening. God be praised. Talk to you again soon.